I would want to just kind of reiterate what Will shared in relation to a week from today. We're seeking vision. We're seeking unity. We're seeking direction. Be here. Be prayerful. We would appreciate that very much. I want to ask you a question this morning. How would you respond if I were to ask you, how is your zeal? Or if I were to ask, what are the compartments of your life? What is it that you're zealous about specifically? Because I think that we function in our Christianity in specifics, not generalizations. Not we come to church, but we come to church for this reason. So, to be even more specific, what if I were to ask, how is your spiritual zeal? How would you respond to that? Now maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty or unclarity in relation to what I'm asking, so I'm going to invite C.H. Spurgeon to actually try to add some clarity, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me. He's going to give us an illustration from his life. It's a little lengthy, but I think it will serve us all very well, especially if we latch on to it and find our place in it. As today, I pray the goal would be finding out, searching our hearts in a specific way to know where our specific zeal lies. He states the following out of the experience of his life. I sat down in an armchair, wearied with my work. My toil had been severe and extended. Many were seeking the pearl of great price, and many had found what they sought. The church wore an aspect of thrift and prosperity, and joy and hope and courage were the prevailing sentiments on every hand. As for myself, I was joyous in work. My brethren were united. My sermons and exhortations were evidently telling on my hearers, and the church was crowded with listeners. The whole community was more or less moved by the prevailing excitement, and as the work went on, I had been led into exhausting labors for its promotion. Tired with my work, I soon lost myself in a half-forgetful state, although I seemed fully aware of my place and surroundings. Suddenly, a stranger entered the room without any preliminary tap or knock. I saw in his face benevolence, intelligence, and weight of character. But though he was reasonably well attired, he carried suspended about his person measures and chemical agents and implements which gave him a very strange appearance. The stranger came toward me and extending his hand said, How is your zeal? I supposed when he began his question that the inquiry was to be for my health, but I was pleased to hear his final word, for I was well pleased with my zeal and doubted not that the stranger would smile when he should know its proportions. Instantly, I conceived of it as a physical quantity, and I put my hand into my bosom, and I brought it forth, and I presented it to him for inspection. He took it and placed it on his scale, weighed it carefully, and I heard him say, One hundred pounds. I scarcely, I could scarcely suppress an audible note of satisfaction, but his earnest look caught me as he noted down the weight. And I saw at once that he had proved no final conclusion, but was intent on following his investigation. He broke the mass into atoms and put the crucible into the fire. 
When it was thoroughly fused, he took it out and set it down to cool. It congealed in cooling, and when turned out on the hearth, exhibited a series of layers of strata, which all, at the touch of his hammer, fell apart. And they were severely tested and weighed, and the stranger making minute notes as the process went on. When he had finished, he presented the notes to me and gave me a look of mingled sorrow and compassion as without a word except, may God have mercy on your soul. He left the room. I opened the note and it read as follows. An analysis of your zeal as a candidate for the crown of glory. Weight in mass, 100 pounds. On this analysis, there proves to be bigotry, 10 parts. Personal ambition, 23 parts. Love of salary, 19 parts. Pride of denomination, 15 parts. Pride of talent, 14 parts. Love of authority, 12 parts. As in relation to your pure zeal, love to God, 4 parts. Love to man, 3 parts. I had become troubled at the peculiar manner of the stranger and especially at his parting look and words. But when I looked at the figures, my heart sank as lead within me. I made a mental effort to dispute the correctness of the record, but was suddenly startled into a most and more honest mood by an audible sigh, almost a groan, from the stranger who had passed into the hall, and then by a sudden darkness that was falling upon me, by which the record became at once obscured and nearly illegible. I suddenly cried out, Oh God, save me! I knelt down at my chair, with the paper in my hands, and my eyes were fixed upon it. At once it became a mirror, and I saw my heart reflected in it. The record was true. I saw it. I felt it. I confessed it. I deplored it. And I besought God to save me from myself with many tears. And at length, with a loud an irrepressible cry of anguish, I woke. I had prayed in years gone by to be saved from hell, but my vow to be saved from myself was now immeasurably more fervent and distressful. Where is your zeal specifically? Where does your zeal lie Specifically, now, for our purpose of discussion this morning, I want to give you a very simple working definition of zeal as we move forward in this passage. And I'm going to define zeal in light of our Christianity, and I'm going to define zeal in a positive context. Zeal is defined as this. Zeal is an extreme enthusiasm and a passionate commitment to uphold the glory of God. It's seen. It's realized in our lives. Or maybe better said, on more simple terms, zeal is being committed to love the things that God loves while as equally strong being passionately committed to hate the very things that God hates. So let's try to define and explore our zeal specifically. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2, please. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This morning we're going to talk about Christ cleansing the temple. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. But moving on to verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, as we approach you this morning, Lord God, we do so with a, a great awareness, Father. Lord, as we, as we see your response to sin, as we see your response and your faithfulness to your to Your Father's glory. Lord God, we may feel a little bit inadequate or a little conviction or a little uncertainty about where we may stand on a few things this morning. So Lord, we would come to You in hope. You, you, you have shown us Your authority, God, as You walk into Your Father's house. So we know as we come together this morning that, Father, You have full authority here. You have authority over our thoughts. You know what's in us. You know what is in all men. There's nothing this morning we can hide. There's nothing that we can have in secret. There's nothing that can take place in our hearts that is apart from your knowledge and your awareness. So we would ask that you would come to us and reveal yourself to us and have your way in us. Accomplish your purpose in us. We know, we know God, you will do that. And we're excited and we're anticipating that. And we ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I want to pull a couple of Principles from this passage. Two. The first one is zeal seen in a specific celebration. Zeal seen in a specific celebration. I'm going to tell you what that celebration is. And secondly, zeal seen in isolated anger. Those are the two truths that we're going to pull from this passage. The first is zeal seen in a specific celebration. Now, I want to suggest this morning that that specific celebration is a celebration of the gospel. I want to suggest this morning that that is the specific reason why we are gathered here. To celebrate the truths of the gospel. Verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We may rightly come to the conclusion that... A building is not the church, but rather people are the church. As a matter of fact, I believe that is the purpose of verses 18 through 22 that we've just read. I believe the purpose is to remind us that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the identity and the idea of the temple is changing. It's transitioning. Christ is not talking about building with mortar and stone. Christ is talking about the building up, the resurrection, the raising up of Himself, which is indeed the foundation upon which a global worshiping community is going to be built. 
Christ will soon say to the woman at the well. Christ will soon say to the woman at Samaria, there is a time which is soon coming, which now has come, that you will not worship because you're in that city or in this mountain. But the time is coming when you will have a personal relationship with God and that relationship will invade and surpass all demographic profiles. Christ has taken the initiative to come so that we don't have to go to a specific place to be with Him. Now, having said that, the purpose and symbolism of His house how we perceive what goes on in His house. What we do when we come to His house. What we expect when we come to His house. What we delight in when we come to His house is of the utmost and greatest importance, or maybe better said or asked, why are we here specifically? Why are we here? It's Passover in Jerusalem. Now, what that means is that there are Jewish travelers throughout all of the known world. Not only are they coming to Jerusalem, but they know specifically why they're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to acknowledge. They're coming to celebrate. They're coming to be taken aback by. They're coming to be reacquainted with a God who delivers. Not only a God who delivers, but specifically a God who has delivered His people from the bondage of Egypt. And even though they have, even though right now, at this moment, as we read this passage, God's people are in Roman bondage, there seems to be an element of freedom. There seems to be an element of liberty about them. That's how it works. As we live under the banner of a God who has delivered, who does deliver, who can deliver, the reality of His deliverance always seems to surpass the trials and tribulations that are, that are, are, that we're dealing with outside of this context. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of being here. Do you know that specific Experience. Now, I pray that you do, beloved, because that is the crux of the gospel that is celebrated by weary, redeemed pilgrims like you and I. Yes, the Jews, they have come to celebrate God in His house because of what He is doing. He's making provision. He's going to receive their sacrifice. He's going to remove from them the guilt of their sin. We come here today We celebrate God in His house because of what He has done. Because He has removed not only the guilt of our sin, but He has removed us from the bondage of that sin. This celebration, this morning, this context, it deals and revolves around the specifics of the cross and not the generalizations of our religion. We do not come to church and then sing and then partake and then listen. We come to church because God has redeemed us. We sing because we are happy because He has redeemed us. We partake of the Lord's table because we are celebrating He has redeemed us. We listen, we lean in and listen because we are learning from a God who has indeed redeemed us. Very specific our purpose for being here. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask any Jew on their way to Jerusalem, Why are you going there? They would inform you with a very clear and unmistaken response. As a matter of fact, there are some families that are going to Jerusalem and they're taking a spotless lamb with them, especially if they're not traveling that far. Somewhere, there's a family that's getting ready to go and celebrate this Passover. There's been a lamb that's been born, so to speak, into their family. The children have raised it since it's been born. They love it. They have affection for it. It's their pet. The family has grown attached to it. They all have a fondness for this innocent, spotless lamb. 
And at some point, the father or the oldest son takes that lamb. They throw the lamb around their shoulders and they head off to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to make their way to the base of the altar. They're going to slit the throat of that lamb as its blood spills upon the altar. Ovens are scattered everywhere so that the people can take the lamb, roast it in haste, and partake of the Passover feast. Listen, there is no doubt these people know exactly why they're here. There are reminders everywhere as to why they are here. I want you to think about the impact of the moment and the value that is placed on the specifics of why they're gathered. Philo of Alexandria stated, Multitudes of people from a multitude of cities flow in an endless stream to the Holy Temple for each Passover festival. From the east and west, from the north and south, As a matter of fact, Jewish tradition stated that in order for the Passover feast to be observed correctly, the only way that could be done was in the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, at this time, the religious leaders had the authority to extend the boundaries of Jerusalem because of the influx of people. Jerusalem will be approximately five times its size in population. Josephus tells us of a time when more than a quarter of a million lambs are being slaughtered and their blood is being spilled. So for seven straight days, there is a constant bleeding of sheep. There is the weeping of children who are attached to the sheep that are being slaughtered. For seven days, for seven straight days, Days there is the constant spilling of blood as the aroma of burning flesh constantly and consistently lingers about with every inhale that they make. Constantly. Specific reminders. They are specific reminders everywhere that it is the sins of the people that is making all of this bloodshed necessary. They know why they're here. They are gathered specifically to celebrate a God who delivers. They are worshiping specifically because a God has reached out and made a way to them. They know what their interaction with God means specifically. He is freeing them from the guilt of their sin. We are here specifically for those same exact reasons. Specifically, we are here as a result and a celebration of that gospel message that when we were dead in our sins, God reached out to us, He saved us, He put us in a right standing, and He delivered us from the wrath of God. Listen, we are here specifically for that reason. Well, I want to talk about the great thing that God has done, is going to do. I want to talk about this great blessing that God has in store for me. I want to talk about all the grand things that God's going to use me to do. And listen, that's fine. We can do that, but let me assure you, beloved, it will never be superior to or detached from the greatest blessing that we have all received due to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have received your greatest blessing right here, right now, through the cross. Everything else that you receive is a fringe benefit, including heaven. Everything. We are here specifically to celebrate the cross. Martin Luther always had a way to identify the specifics of salvation. He tells of a time when the devil appeared to him in a dream and the devil brought to him a long scroll. And the devil unrolled that scroll and on that scroll was listed all of his sins. And as the devil handed that list of sins to Luther, Luther responded by saying, Now, right at the bottom, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And then adds, oh, that blessed word all. Listen, from all sin. Great sins and little sins. Sins of our youth and sins of our gray hairs. Sins by night sins by day, sins of action and sins of thought, all gone. Blessed Savior. That is the specific purpose of our gathering. 
We sing specifically to that truth. We come specifically to this table to respond to that. We listen specifically because of the reality of the cross. That is the specific celebration of God's people in God's house. When Jesus said, this is my Father's house, the implications are grand, and as grand as they are, the meaning is specific. This is my Father's house. This is where my Father's glory resides because of the great fact that He redeemed you. Now, I think Jesus' actions are very relevant. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. Do you know that when things go wrong in the church, things go wrong in the world? Do you know that when the emphasis in the church becomes religion, then religion is what becomes more evident in the world? Do you know that when there is a lack of emphasis on the gospel in the church, then there is a lack of emphasis of the gospel in the world. And when we focus on religion in the church, we're very unbalanced in the world. We don't respond to the sins of people the way that we should. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But I think that Jesus is highlighting the reality that judgment begins in God's house because He makes an appearance and He begins His ministry and His work from the inside of the Father's house outward. He starts here. He starts here and he moves his way outward. Now, he may have been able to go to the money changers and say, hey, listen, what are you doing? And you know what? They may say, hey, listen, we're being inclusive. <laughs> we love everybody, man. We are loving these people by inviting them in where they are, how they are. We want them to come in. We're just loving people. But I want to assure you of something. We cannot love people accurately the way Christ loved people without the specifics of the gospel, which begins by what we're doing in here. We cannot love people and neglect to tell them the specifics of the gospel. Do we talk about compassion? Absolutely, we talk about compassion, but that compassion has to be coupled with the reality of God's wrath. Do we talk about grace? Absolutely, we talk about grace, but we have to talk about grace coupled with the reality of how God feels about sin. If we do not talk about that here, no one else will. If we do not start that conversation here, it will not make its way out there. If the specifics of the gospel are compromised in here, we replace a God who is angry at sin with a God who loves everyone so much that He is morally neutral. And it starts right here. And it makes its way outward from here into the world. Mark Dever says, If a right theology of God provides the framework for right teaching, then a focus on the gospel provides the center of right teaching. If the God preached is not offended by sin and does not judge sinners, then the gospel itself is short-circuited and people are lied to in a manner which imperils their salvation. The right teaching of the true church, therefore, centers itself upon a right understanding of the gospel. Right teaching about the gospel also centers the church on Christ's work of atonement and not only in His teaching or life example. Thus... When the church gathers, it gathers not simply as an instructed or edified people, but as a ransomed and saved people. We gather with the understanding of specifically why we are here. We are here specifically as a result of what God has done through the cross. Specifically, that's why we're here. That's what we're celebrating. And when it starts here and we take that message out to the world, yeah, that's when things change. I want to put out another issue too, though. We see zeal in Christ in isolated anger as well. Isolated anger. I want to make the suggestion that the zeal we see is isolated anger towards sin. I think that that could have been a little helpful to Spurgeon if he would have been able to kind of sort all of that out. Look at verse 15. 
and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jews from all over the world have come to celebrate. And the reality is it would have been a little impractical for every Jew that came to be able to bring with them their own sacrifice. It would have been hard to drag an oxen from the other end of the continent. So they're being sold here. Problem is they're being sold for outlandish prices. People are being taken advantage of. It's also time to pay the temple tax. So in order to do that, money changes are in place to, to convert Roman coinage because a lot of the coins had pagan mottos and pagan images on them and they would not be acceptable to deposit or pay the, the, the temple tax. So there are a lot of people that are coming to God's house. They're paying inflated rates for sacrifices and they're being overcharged to, to change and convert their money. And Jesus is angry about that. Jesus is very angry, but I want to make a suggestion. I don't think that he is just angry because of what's taking place in the house of God that the Jews are participating in. I think he is just as angry at the result of what the Jews are doing and how what the Jews are doing is affecting the outside world. You see, this marketplace that Jesus disrupts, it's set up in the court of the Gentiles. So if we were to establish some imagery of what this scene may look like, center stage would be the Holy of Holies and the court of priests. So the Holy of Holies is the place where God reveals His presence. The court of priests is the place where the priests come, they worship God, and they serve the people. A little bit out beyond that is the court of Israel. And that's where Jewish men only can worship and offer sacrifice. A little bit out from that, a little bit farther, was the court of women. And it's the only place that women could go to worship. And it's not that men couldn't worship there, but it was that women couldn't go beyond there. And then out a little bit further from that was the court of the Gentiles. You see, some Gentiles were there because they believed and they were worshiping. But there were some Gentiles that could come there that were there because they were curious to know about the God who redeems. So Gentiles who did not know God but wanted to learn about God could come to the court of Gentiles and watch everything that the people of God are doing. They could go no further, but they could go there. And instead of being able to learn about God, the greatness of God's redemption, they're exposed to the bickering and the bartering and the thievery that's going on in God's, God's house right there. They're exposed, they're exposed to the sin, to the greed, to everything that's taking place there. And we see that Jesus is extremely angry. And if there's ever a time that the gospel presentation should be the clearest, it should be right now because evangelism has come to them. If there's ever a time that the glory of God needs to be talked about in the backdrop of His grace, it's right here, it's right now. If there's any time that God's glory should be highlighted the most, if there's any time that the character of God should be celebrated the loudest, it's right here, right now, and the very moment, beloved, that the good news of the gospel or the good news of what God has done is substituted for any type of self-interest or commercialization of the gospel, I believe that God is angry. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, I want you to know, the first thing I think we learn is that anger is a very acceptable emotion. God is angry. We see Christ being angry. Therefore, it is acceptable that we are angry. There's going to be times that we're going to be angry, but I think it's very important that our anger is always bridled by a specific understanding and the framework of what it is exactly that makes God angry. Jonathan Edwards had 70, 70 some resolutions. Does anybody know that exact figure? One of his resolutions was that he vowed to never get angry at an inanimate or lifeless object. 
It's one of his resolutions. And the reason for that is because God is sovereign and in control over inanimate objects. And inanimate objects do not have the will to commit an immorality. So if I'm the guy that's changing a flat tire on the side of the road, okay, and it's not going well, and I take the tire iron and I hurl it across the road at a tree, or if I'm the guy sitting in traffic laying on the horn because the light's red and it's broken in that spot and it's not turning green, reality is, chances are, I just have anger issues. But Jesus makes it very clear because He creates the context by which we can be angry. And I want to encourage you to cultivate a right anger. I want to encourage you to be angry in the framework that Christ establishes acceptable angry. As a matter of fact, I would say that it is wrong if we are not angry. It not only suggests that we may be void of emotion, I believe that it could suggest we're void of conviction. Listen, be angry, but be angry at sin specifically. Be angry at sin solely. Be angry at Satan who tempts men to sin. Be angry at the disregard of holy things because of the allure of sin. Be angry at the disrespect directed toward God because of the preference of sin. Be angry at sin and be like God. William Secker rightly said, He that would be angry and not sin must be angry at nothing but sin. We see Paul kind of displaying that. Acts 17, 16. It says, Now while Paul was awaiting them at Athens, his spirit was grieved and roused to anger as he saw that the city was full of idols. Man, don't we have to use such extreme caution at this point? Because look, we're talking about Christ. Man, he's mad. He's taking ropes. He's made a whip. He's loosing oxen. He's loosing sheep. He's letting letting birds go. He's chasing people out. He's flipping over tables. He is mad, man. He's mad. And we have to be so cautious there because I would think that it would be very hard for us to be able to display that type of anger and it not be pressing or probably full throttle sin. As a matter of fact, I believe that Watchman Nee offers us some very great advice at this point. He says, anger is one of the most crude of human feelings. But the Bible does not prohibit us to be angry because some types of anger are not related to sin. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Nonetheless, Anger of any kind is so strong that it nearly always borders on sin. We do not find a verse in God's Word charging us to love but sin not. Or to be meek and sin not. Why? Because love and meekness are far removed from sin, but anger is so, so close to the vicinity of sin. What, how do we deal with that? How do we do with that? Because we get angry. Look, this morning, putting my stuff together, looking for my hole puncher, can't find it. Man, I'm getting mad. I'm getting mad. I know I put it in that drawer. Girls, I'm getting mad. How do we, how do we counter that, guys, when we're getting angry? There has to be a middle ground that we seek. Of course, of course, our goal is to, to go to God and, and ask God to help us and change us and deal with our hearts. But there's also a middle ground that we have to seek, and I believe it's coupled with that. And I believe we find that middle ground in Matthew 21.5. This is what we're told of Christ as He's entering into Jerusalem on His triumphal entry. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. The word gentle is from a Greek word, preus. And it means that Christ's will, along with His power, are in complete submission to the Father. I remember the church that, that I was saved in, we would, it had a lot of young guys in it, and there was a gentleman there, an older gentleman, and a lot of these kids would come in and they'd have their baseball caps on. 
And man, he would see a kid with a baseball cap on and he would run to them and he would yank that hat off their head and he'd say, hey you, have some respect in the house of God. Have some respect here. Take that hat off. Listen, what Jesus is displaying here is not an outburst to try to say, hey listen, have some respect for the house of God. He is mad, but this is not an outburst of anything that's uncontrolled. This is not an outburst of uncontrolled anger. Even in His anger that He is displaying at this moment, it is controlled and it is submitted to the Father. Why? Because He's praise, He's gentle. His will, His power completely submitted. Now, Aristotle talked about this word praise. And he described it as the middle ground between two extremes. On the one extreme of anger, you have out-of-control anger, which is anger that is directed in an area that is completely outside of the context of Scripture. I'm just mad. On the other extreme is not getting angry at all. In other words, sin does not offend me enough to cause me to get angry. So Aristotle described that middle ground as getting angry at the right time, in the right measure, and for the right reason. Now, I want to make a suggestion this morning, and I know it sounds cliche. Okay? Here's the middle ground. Hate the sin, but but make a distinction between the sin and the sinner. Hate the sin, but have a love for the sinner. That's the middle ground. That's going to help us bridle and harness our anger. I want to give you a scriptural example of that. Mark 3, 1 through 5. Now, Jesus is going into the synagogue, separate occasion, of course. And it says this. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save a life, or to kill. But they were silent. Now verse 5 is the key. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and he was restored. Yes, notice that Christ is angry. Notice that he's watching people in disbelief, He's watching people residing in their sin. He's watching people be content in their sin. And he's angry. But notice what that anger moves him to do. Notice how that anger moves him to respond to the very person he's angry at. Moves him to grief. His anger toward the sin, his anger toward the disbelief, moves him to grief toward the sinner. Listen, I encourage you, get angry. Be angry at sin. Listen, get angry. Get angry at the results of abortion. Get angry at that, man. Get angry at that, but let me encourage you with everything that is within you, cultivate and develop a love for the person who's going there or has been there. My daughters came home. It's been several, several weeks ago. My oldest daughter, they were in a public place and, and she overheard two females talking and they were talking about that issue. And they were not only talking about the results of, of the issue, but they were talking about the mentality of the women who have been there and have done that. And these women were being called stupid, ignorant, clueless. I'm of the belief of Brendan Manning. I believe that there will be women that we see in heaven, and you know what? Yeah, they've had abortions. I believe it. They're going to be there. Hate the sin. Love the sinner. Care enough. Let their sin grieve us to the point of, listen, you got to know about the God who can not only save you, change you, but deliver you from the guilt of your sin. Yes, hate Hate the consequences of how prevalent homosexuality is. Hate that, but have a love and an affection directed toward the person 
we were in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and we developed friends with a guy who was a worship leader at, at the church that we were a part of, 700-member church. He's the worship leader. He's a doctor. He's wealthy. He invites us over. Him and I are sitting by the edge of his pool, and he says, i got to tell you something about my life. All right, man, what's up? I used to be a practicing homosexual. What happened? God changed my life. I, I madly, passionately in love with my wife, madly, passionately love my children. God has freed me. God has delivered me. Be angry at the sin, but every time you look at the person, know the possibilities of what the gospel can do and cultivate a love and a care and a concern for the person. That's the middle ground. Period. Hate the sin, love the sinner. As cliche as it may sound, that's our middle ground. And you know what? Where's your zeal? Do you have zeal for the specifics of the gospel? Really, is that why we're here? I mean, we're not, we, didn't, we don't show up and come and just sing. We are singing because we have a song on our mouths because of what God's done. That's why we're here. That's why we come here. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. Are you zealous for the reality and the specifics of the gospel? Are you zealous for isolated anger towards sin? And yet at the same time, a love toward the sinner. It's tough, but it's the call. That's the middle ground. God can do that. God can do that in your heart. Charles Spurgeon finishes the statement that he previously started by saying this. Nor did I rest, nor did I pause, till the refining fire came down and went through my heart, searching, probing, melting, burning, filling all its channels with light and hallowing my whole heart to God. The light and love are still in my soul today from that moment. And when the toils of my pilgrimage shall be at an end, I expect to kneel in heaven at the feet of the divine alchemist and bless him for the revelations of that day which showed me where I stood and turned my feet into a better, higher, and narrower path. That day was the crisis of my history. And if there shall prove to have been in later years some depth and earnestness in my convictions and some searching and saving pugnancy in my words, I doubt not eternity will show their connections with the visit from the searcher of hearts at whose coming my sins went to judgment beforehand. And I was weighed in the balance and found wanting. Yes, beloved, God, God, the great searcher of our hearts, He can judge us right now. Expose the sin in our hearts, reveal where we're lacking, identify where we're lacking zeal, give us the zeal that we need to be effective out here. Starts in here, works outward toward there. The same way it did in the temple for Jesus. Ask you if you would to bow your heads with me, please. I believe that these two ideas kind of go hand in hand. We're zealous for the specifics of the gospel. And the overflow of being zealous for the specifics of the gospel is that when we're more enlightened and more intimate with the reality of everything that God has done on our behalf, you know what? We do start to cultivate somewhat of an anger towards sin and at the same time a grand love for the sinner. That happens. So I want to ask just for a brief moment that you would just just sit before the Lord before I close this in prayer. And let God take the crucible of your heart and place it into the fire right before you right now. Let it be broken. Let it fall apart. And what do you see? What do you see in the specific compartments of your life? 
Where's your zeal? Where's your zeal at, man? Where's it? What's it driven toward? Where is your love? What's your love for? How many parts of your zeal are given to a love to God and a love to man? Father, as we come to You right now, Lord, we're reminded of what we just read. There is no one to bear witness about us. We can't even bear witness about ourselves. You know what's in our hearts, God. Father, give us courage right now to confess that to You. Give us courage, God, right now to to seek to identify where our true zeal really lies. And Father, may we be zealous for You. May we take the counsel of Paul right now. May we examine ourselves, God. And and God, the the grand scheme of Your grace isn't that we would do that to to feel beat up or condemned, but God, you You would love us through that process. You would encourage us through that process. You would set our feet aright regardless of how wrong or what wrong ground we may be standing on now, Lord, do it. Do it, in your, do it in our hearts. Do it in your people. Do it for your glory. Do it for the lost. And so, Lord, we're, yeah, God, we're, we're, we're looking, we're searching. We care about what's taking place in, in your house. We care because we know that what goes on here makes its way out there. God, we care about it. We want to care about it. Help us, Lord. Help us to to just be committed to caring. Father, change our hearts. And so, God, I guess our confession is we need you. We just desperately are in need of your your mercy, your your care, your, your discipline, your correction, your gentleness, your affection. Do it in our hearts, Father. Pray. Jesus' name.